Well, if you're new here today, we are in a series in the book of Ephesians. When I um, decided to do this, actually a couple years ago, I said, you know, I want to take some time to go through the book. It might take us two or three months to actually get through the whole book. And um, I'm here to tell you it's going to take longer that originally we were going to be wrapped up by next week. We're not even through chapter 2 by next week. And we'll pause for Christmas and pick it up again at the first of the year. And uh, I have a feeling we're going to go all the way un- until summer, maybe even into summer. But the letter to the Ephesians is so packed, it's so rich. I mean, I've even personally benefiting from things I've never really studied that deeply before. Some of the most profound Christian truths are found in the letter to the Ephesians. Because Paul is writing to a group of people who didn't come from a Jewish background, didn't grow up with the Bible, didn't grow up going to church, and yet they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote this letter to encourage them in their faith. And he reminds them of what, what God has been doing for them, and what God wants to do through them, who they are in Christ, their identity. And so when we got into the first chapter, Paul, toward the end of it, prayed that they would know God better and in particular know the power that is theirs. The same power, he says, that raised Jesus from the dead and allowed him to be seated in heaven. And Paul pauses and says, remember where you once were? Remember what you came from? Remember what it was like before Christ? How you were following the ways of the world, heading down a deadly path? How you listened to the ruler of the prince of the air, uh, that this, this devilish dude that we listen to and who deceives us, and how we're enslaved to our own sinful nature? He says, remember that? Remember where you used to be? And God lifted you up. That power that lifted you up is the same power that will raise you one day to be with him in glory. And so last week, we looked at what the grace of God does in reversing all those consequences of sin. Instead of being dead, we're alive. Instead of being children of disobedience, we are children of God. Instead of having to face the, the wrath of God, we now receive the mercy of God. And we kind of paused right there in the middle of a passage. And we're going to pick it up today. Now, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a phone, you can download Bible apps that give you the Bible for free. You can follow along there. And let me just say to those that are fairly new, uh, it is amazing what this ancient book called the Bible teaches us about human nature and about God. And I just want to encourage you, if, if you're intimidated by the Bible, just slowly get into it because you will find it speaks, it speaks truth, not fake news, truth, <laughs> profound truth that actually will, will stir something inside you that's never been stirred before. And maybe even today you've already experienced some of that in worship where God is doing something, God is speaking, God is causing a restlessness, God is moving you to tears, God is awakening something within you. That's what his word can do. And so we're going to read um, from Ephesians chapter 2, right in the middle of a passage. And so I'm going to pick up this in verses 6 through 9. It says, and, speaking of God, and God raised us with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God does for us through Christ two things that we can never do for ourselves. And we're going to look at those things today. God does for me what I can't do for myself. In, spe- in, in specific, this. God takes me to where I could never go. He's taken me to a place the Bible describes as heaven. He calls it here these heavenly places, heavenly realms. It says we're raised with, with Jesus and seated with him in heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. You'll notice when Paul writes, he can hardly get a sentence out without mentioning Jesus. It seems like every time, time he's talking about anything, it's, it's in Christ, it's by Christ, it's for Christ, it's with Christ. I mean, his whole world is revolving around Christ, and that's a truth you have to understand, that there's no life outside of Christ. Everything is found in Christ. Everything's found in a relationship with Christ. Until you know, Je- until you know Jesus, you will not experience the life God had intended for you. Everything takes us back to Jesus and a relationship with him. And so it says that we are raised with him and seated in heavenly places. When you receive Jesus as Savior, when you surrender your life to him, just like the girls did today, something mystical, almost magical happens. You are you're all of a sudden united with him. Jesus said it's like a branch connected to the vine. You're connected to Jesus in a very intimate way so that what happened to Jesus physically happens to us spiritually. So Jesus died on a cross. We died with him. Jesus was buried. We were buried with him. Jesus was raised from the dead. We were raised with him. Jesus was ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He says, you were too. You were seated with him there in glory. Now, what does that mean to be seated with Jesus in heavenly places? I mean, that just sounds like Something really cool, but I have no clue what that really means because my bottom's sitting in a chair at Pikes Peak Christian Church. How can I be seated up there when I'm actually here? And it doesn't feel like I'm up there. It feels like I'm here. I just don't get this. This is a a tough concept that I'm going to try to give you a little bit of insight. I don't have all the answers, but I think I have uh, some things to say to this. One of the things I think it teaches us is that the fact that Jesus sat down and we sat down with him in heaven... That picture there tells us something very profound. Tells us that the work that's required for us to be right with God has been finished. See, in the book of Hebrews, it says that day after day, priests would go into the temple and repeatedly offer sacrifices for sins, but it could never actually remove sins. So they constantly did this day after day after day, year after year. There were no chairs in the temple to sit down because their work was never finished. But it says this, Hebrews chapter 10, also in chapter 12, when Jesus finished his work, when he gave the one sacrifice that truly could take away sins, when he offered the sacrifice of his own body, it says he sat down. The work of the priesthood was done. There are some religions that have priests today. They're not needed. They're not needed. Your priest has done the work that allows you to be connected to God. And that work was done by Jesus Christ. So when he sat down, what he was saying is what he said on the cross. It is finished. It's done. And it's important for us to remember that the work is done because it's our work is done. It's been done for us. Also in the book of Hebrews, there's all these pictures of foreshadowing practices, uh, rituals that the Jewish people practiced that gave insight into what Jesus came to do. So the sacrifices were a picture of what Jesus was going to come to do. The Sabbath day, which was a key part of their religious observance, was, was to tell them of something greater. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, that there is a rest that, that God wants people to enter into. And he's speaking here spiritually, not, not speaking of the seventh day of the week of taking time off of work, because a Sabbath means you rest from what? Work. He says there is a Sabbath that the people of God get to enter into. What it means is this. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, that is your Sabbath. 
You actually rest from the work of trying to earn favor with God. And so, so the fact that we're seated with Jesus means Jesus has done it with his work. I, I don't have to work for it either. We can rest. Another thing that, that's taught in this is that we are guaranteed a place in heaven. Guaranteed a place in heaven. I'm not there yet, but there's a seat reserved for me. I'm seated there. Nobody better sit in my chair because it's for me. It's like I got my name up there on the back of it. My name's in heaven. My chair's already reserved. I, I love going to movies, and I like the renovation at Tinseltown. They have these really wide chairs that are cushioned. You guys have been there, right? Yeah, you push the button. Woo! Now, I, I get really comfortable at movies, and I've been known to drift into sleep a time or two at a movie time or 200 at a, almost every movie, almost every. My wife's always, even the other day, a couple times, little elbow to, uh, to, to alert me because I get so comfortable. And, it's, and those chairs make it even more comfortable. It's the perfect place for a snooze because nobody's going to text me. There's no email to answer. It's just wonderful. I, I love going to movies. And, you know, but what I really like about Tinseltown, even better than the chairs, is the fact that when you get your ticket, it has a, a row and a seat number on it. Right, you have a reserved seat. So it used to be you walk into a theater, and especially if you're close to the start time, you walk in, you go, oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's packed, and we've got to find you know, two seats or four seats, and we're looking all around, excuse me, honey, do you see anything over there? I think, that, no, there's a guy, he's bending over. How about over there? I don't want to sit by them. That's a big guy, he's, he's, he's overflowing his chair. I don't want to sit over there. And you know, you're kind of looking around, and that's too close. Now we just go, hey, we're going to sit right there. Let's get those tickets. We walk in. Doesn't matter what time we walk in there, those are our seats. We've got them. Well, Paul is saying you have a seat in heaven next to Jesus. And Jesus indicated something like this when he told his disciples in John 14, hey, I am, I am going away. So just, just like you trust God, trust me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and get you and take you to be with me so you can be where I am. Jesus wants us to be with him in heaven. So he's prepared a place for us, a place of authority. You know, the right hand of God is referring to a place of honor and place of authority. We as believers have been given authority from God to go into all the world, make disciples, to have power over the enemy, to not be afraid of the evil things in the world, that the, that the forces of the church can go forward in this world. Not even the gates of, of hell will prevail against it. There's something else this picture of being seated in the heavenlies conveys to us that we belong to a different kingdom. We used to belong to Satan's kingdom. Really, there's just two kingdoms in the, in the world. There's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of Satan is entered into by all who sin, all who've chosen to listen to the evil one, all who've chosen to rebel against God, which is all of us. Paul said we've all, all lived there at one time. But when you give your life to Christ, you get moved to a different team. And now you belong to him. In Colossians, the very first chapter. Colossians is like very similar to Ephesians, written by Paul from the same place, similar period of time. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has moved us. So now we belong to somebody else. We belong to a, a different team under new management. And so he does that. He moves us to this new place. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. And honestly, that is where we want to be. 
Paul, Paul tells us that we're seated in heaven. And in Colossians, he says, so set your mind on things above. Set your mind on eternal things. Set your mind on things that are future, where you're going. Things get discouraging on this earth, but have hope because things will get better there. And so we don't, we don't bank on everything here being perfect. We don't, we don't expect us to have you know, Christian America and everything's perfect and perfect bodies and all this. We recognize there's a, a better place coming and another time. That's where we're heading. If you're going on a great vacation and you had, you had saved up and you'd planned to go to this incredible place, maybe it's the place of your dreams, it was one of those, the biggest thing on your bucket list, as soon as you got the reservation made, you start envisioning, oh, can't wait till we get there. Can't wait till we get to you know, Hawaii or wherever it is. Can't wait. Oh, the, I can see the beach. I just picture what it's going to be like. I'm thinking about that place, right? You're thinking about where you're going. Well, Paul basically is saying that. Think about where you're going. See, it's possible to be physically in one place and your heart in another place. That's why that song, uh, Tony Bennett's song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, Meaning, yeah, I may be physically in another city, New York or Miami or Philadelphia, but my heart's back there, back on the coast. That's where I long to be. That's where my affection is. That's where my thoughts are. We are, we are pilgrims on this earth. We are journeyers on this earth, but we're looking forward to the place that we're going. That is our destination. Paul wrote to the Philippian church in chapter 3, the 20th verse, our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. So as believers, we, we, we think of the future. We think of what's to come. We, we know that this earth is temporary. It's, it's not, it couldn't be any more vivid than in two tombs located in the Middle East. The first one is a tomb of a king of Egypt named King Tut. Now, I won't say his full name because I just like Tut. That's very easy to say. When they found the remains of King Tut about 100 years ago, they found in a pyramid this vast room filled with all kinds of furniture and objects and collectibles, gold and very, very precious things, perfumes and, and all these things that it was believed that could be taken to the next life. Now, I kind of, I wonder in King Tut's mind, are you telling me the place that, you're, that you think you're going to doesn't have these things or better things than these? So you're going to gather up as much as you can and take it with you because where you're going isn't as good as where you just left? I mean, that's interesting. And his body was encased in this sarcophagus that's, that's covered with gold. I mean, it, think of the value of what was in King, King Tut's tomb. And then you go to another tomb in the Middle East, in Palestine, and it's just a hollowed-out hole in a rock where a man once lay. And there's no furniture in that place. There's no gold, no jewels, no perfume. All they found was a cloth. They couldn't even find the body. It's gone. Because the body walked out of that tomb. And God raised him to heaven. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't put his treasures in the earth. He knew there was a better place to come. And that's why we look forward to that place as well. Now, as as we think about this, Paul says, remember where you've been seated... You've been raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did it so that, meaning there's a purpose for it. There's a purpose for all this. So that in the ages to come, and I couldn't really find a clear answer for this, 
of how many ages there are, what Paul's referring to. He's talking about the present and at least the future of not even longer, but it's a long time. He's talking about the endless future. In these coming ages, he wants to display the grace and kindness that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to know. God does all this, not so much for us, but for his own glory. He does it for his glory. Everything is for his glory. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that we even might be for the praise of his glory. All the creation, it says, declares the glory of God. Everything we are to do, whether in word or deed, we're to do to the glory of God. We live our lives for the glory of God. We do good deeds so that people would see it and not praise us, but glorify our Father in heaven. You read through the book of Revelation, they're, they're singing the praises and giving glory to God. I have a feeling when we get to heaven, it's going to be something like this. I'm going to get there and go, I can't, this is incredible. I can't believe that I'm in this place. Thank you, God. Thank you for making, this is better than I ever dreamed. This is, this is fantastic. This is incredible. I'm going to be in awe of what God has done and that he allows me to be there. Not because I achieved it, but because he gave it to me. It was a gift of his grace. Do you know what else is going to be so amazing? I'm going to look out there and go, and you're there too. I didn't know if you were going to make it. I wasn't quite sure, but you're there too. That is awesome. That is so incredible. That is so amazing. And they're going to go, I know. I wasn't sure either, but hey, high five. Woo! We made it. And we're going to give all praise to him. Amen. We're going to spend eternity giving glory to God. Here's something that's, that we have to get our heads wrapped around. Even though we benefit from going to heaven and all this, God did it to glorify himself. God did it so that people would praise him for his kindness, for his patience, for his mercy. See, Paul caught a hold of this. He understood this because when he wrote his letter to Timothy in the first chapter, listen to what he says in the 16th verse. He just got done saying he's the worst of sinners, doesn't deserve anything. And he says, but I receive mercy for this reason, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God is using me as a display of grace. When people look at you, what they're seeing is, wow, you're not so good, but your God sure is good. And God says, I am. I'm that good. I'm that gracious. I'm that patient and that loving because it points the attention back to God. God is the center. That's why in heaven, we don't congratulate each other. All the eyes are on the one who sits on the throne. All glory, all honor, all praise, all, you know, all everything is given to him because he receives the glory. So first of all, he takes me where I couldn't go, which is heaven, and he gives me what I couldn't earn, salvation. He says that we are saved by his grace. Now, you need to know there are actually two ways to be saved. There's, a, there's, there's man's way and there's God's way. Let me tell you about man's way. Man's way says that in order to, to be saved, you have to be good. Good people get to go to heaven. Bad people don't. God saves good people. Bad people get judged, right? That's, that's the way we grew up thinking. It just sounds logical. It's the American way. 
I mean, that, that fits into the capitalistic mindset because we grow up knowing that if you want something, you got to work for it. If you want to move up, you got to put in some effort, right? So we teach our kids when they're little. You do your chores, you get a sticker, you get a treat, you get something. You go to school, and you do your homework, and you write your papers, you do your projects, and you get to see what your grade is, how you rank with other people, how you measure up to the standard. And, and if you're a competitive person, if you're an achieving person, which many of us are, we say, man, I want, the, I want to get the top grades. I, I, I want to I score well. When I was in high school, there were, there were certain students in my class And some of you were these kind of students. You always knew your grade point average and where you stood among your peers. You know, I'm number five. I'm number three. You know, I'm trying to be number one and hold my position on valedictorian. You know, I'm keeping track. And then it translates into college or translates into military life. Military life is is, is quite a bit about rank and moving up and achievement. It's true in business. You've got sales quotas, and you've got promotions and titles. And, and my daughter works for Mary Kay. My goodness, they're all about rewards and, and things like that. So she and her team are driven to sell product and to build their teams. And they get pins, and they get recognition, and they get pink Cadillacs and those kind of things. They get all those things because that's fair. And if you want something, you work for it. You earn it. And, and when you translate it into the religious world, it just makes sense. There are many religions. I would, say, I would really say almost every religion buys into this system. If you're good, you qualify. And when I say good, I, I mean good in a, in a number of ways. It could be good morally. You're just a good-hearted person. You're good in doing good deeds. You do good for other people. You're you're altruistic. You help poor people. You, you visit those that are in need. You're very generous. You're, you do good deeds. Or, or good might be you do all the religious rituals that are required. You attend church. You say the prayers. You give the gifts. You bend the knee. You keep the, the rituals. You fast when you're supposed to. You do all the things that your religion requires you to do because you're a good person. You might be good Lutheran, good Catholic, good Mormon, whatever it is. You're good. And you do the things that are required of you, and so you earn salvation. Here's the problem with that. A couple problems. One is, how good is good enough? I mean, really, how good is good enough? Is, is it pass-fail? 51% just gets me over the hump. I'm just barely good enough. I mean, I've done, I've done many, many funerals. And it's very interesting in, in talking about the person who's passed away. The family and friends always say, oh, he was a good man. She was a good woman. Now, I know they didn't go to church. They weren't the church-type person. I could probably add to it, they never supported a missionary. They never read their Bibles. They never witnessed to anyone. And yet we call them a good person because that's our culture. We look from our lens and we think, well, good means you're not as bad as the bad people. You're better and so you're good. So good is somewhere, you know, maybe it's a sea level what if, what if good is A? What if good is A plus in God's, God's economy? And no matter what it is, how do you know where you rank? Because I'll tell you, there are many times where I've taken tests in school and thought I knew a lot more than I did. I thought I was going to get an A and I got a C or D. What if you wake up in eternity and found out, I thought I was a good person. God says, no, you're not. Because here's the truth. And this is the biggest problem. We're not as good as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. And we will look around, and people we think are good, 
Now, I'm just going to point the finger at some other people first for a little bit. We get these movie executives coming out now and politicians. And is it any surprise the skeletons that are brought out of the closets of these leaders? Uh, When we hear about John F. Kennedy and his dealings with women and Tiger Woods, who was a, a golfing icon, and, and someone who was a hero to me when I was growing up. I mean, the father of fathers, Mr. Huxtable, Bill Cosby. And now we're starting to see all these things. And, and then I've, I've read about pastors who stepped down from their roles as pastors of megachurches because of the way they've dealt with the morality of their lives. But, but the problem is bigger than that. All of us have skeletons in our closet. All of us have things that we've been hiding failing to go public with, failing to recognize. There's a lot of darkness within us. Paul, when he was looking at his own life, saw himself as a sinner, saw himself as not as good as he thought he was. Kyle Eidelman, who's a pastor, writer, went to Ozark Christian College. He actually was there uh, for part of the time that Dustin and Morgan Fisher were there. And Kyle Eidelman wrote a paper on Paul's statement in uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, I am the worst of sinners. And so he wrote a paper on that and described how Paul, before he found Christ, was, was the worst enemy of the church, how he persecuted Christians, how he put them to death, how he was a blasphemer. And he turned his paper in, thought he did a really good job, and the professor handed it back and said, rewrite this. What's, what's wrong with this? What did I do wrong? So he finally went up to the professor and said, hey, I don't get this. You want me to rewrite it, but I don't understand why. He handed him the paper, and the professor circled one word, just one word. It was, it was, it was from 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul's word, am. I am the worst of sinners. See, what Kyle thought was he was the worst of sinners, but he changed. The truth was, Paul said, no, no, I was the worst of sinners. I still am the worst of sinners. If you don't look in the mirror and see yourself as the worst sinner, you've ever known, you don't know yourself very well. Whoa, whoa, pastor, I'm not that bad. That's the problem. That's part of the problem. But here's the good thing. The greater your need for grace, the greater the supply of grace God has to give. And so we have to acknowledge that I can't make it on my own. I don't qualify. A few years ago, Michael Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York City, said during this fight for a gun control policy, if you remember, he also had, had laws about soda and, and anti-smoking. And he told a reporter this. He says, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Wow, wow. That's the mentality of I've earned it. But the truth is you can't earn it. None of us will earn it. We can only be saved by grace. Remember what grace is? Mercy means I don't get what I deserve. Grace means I get something I don't deserve. Grace means I get what I'm disqualified to get. And so we're saved by grace. It says in the amplified version of verse 8, for it is by free grace, God's unmerited favor, that you are saved or delivered from judgment and made partakers of Christ's salvation through your faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves, of your own doing. It came not through your striving, but it is a gift of God. See, man's way says you earn it. God's way is you receive it. You receive it. You cannot earn it. Jesus told a a story that I think illustrates these two 
different ways of salvation real clearly. He told the story of, a, of a, two men that came to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a very religious man in Jesus' day, studied his Bible, attended church, fasted from food, gave money, did all the religious things. He was, a, from culture's view, a good man. And so this Pharisee comes up to the temple and he says, Hey, God, it's me. And here's all the things I've did to show my devotion to you. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And most of all, I'm not like these guys, especially those despicable tax collectors. And then Jesus said there was a tax collector who came to the temple. He stayed at a distance in shame. Now, if you know anything about tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were, they were the worst because they worked for Rome, and they came to collect taxes, but they could add on whatever else they wanted to keep for themselves. And you couldn't really fight them. So they got, they got very rich off, off scamming people. And so they were just hated. And this tax collector, Jesus says, comes up to, to pray, but he won't, even, he won't even look up. He won't even look up at the temple. But he, but he beats himself and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man will go home right with God, but not the first man. Because when we think we've qualified and we think we've measured up, God says, you <laughs> You have no clue how far you are. But this man who acknowledges he's not good enough, he's the man that's in a position to receive it. See, uh, salvation is a gift, and we receive it by faith. During the 1500s, in fact, this fall was the um, 500th anniversary of an event called the Reformation. Real quick history lesson. The Reformation came about in 1517 when a monk named Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 grievances against the Catholic Church because the church had become so corrupt. At the time, the Pope had declared that that if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you can buy forgiveness through what's called indulgences. And if you give money to the church, we'll give you a certificate of paper that says you're forgiven. Do you know they built the Vatican with that? Off the guilt of people. That, That great church that people go to visit was built from the guilt of people. And Martin Luther said that's the, la- that's, that's the, that's the straw that's breaking the camel's back. Because, because as he read scripture, he found this. We're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. And that's the truth. This is the gift of God. Our standing with God is not based on anything we do but what God does. And honestly, there was only, only one person who ever was good enough to be saved. There's only one person who's ever walked this planet who was so selfless, who loved God with total devotion, and he was crucified for it. And you say, Pastor, that's not fair. That's the one who should have gone to heaven freely. I know that's not fair. That's why it's not called fair. It's called Grace. Grace means you get what you don't deserve. Christ didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve to die for our sins. He did. So we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. There is a trade. God gives something. So how does he save us? By grace, through faith. Through faith. God gives grace we receive it through faith. Faith is the hand. 
that reaches out. Sometimes people say, well, man, man can't do that because if man believes, that's a work. That's his effort. No, Paul actually contrasts that in Romans 4. In Romans chapter 4, he tells the difference between works and grace. Now, to the one who works, his wages are, counted, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You work, you get paid. That's, what, that's your reward. And to the one who does not work, but believes. See, believe is separated from works. Believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is um, credited as righteousness. So faith is simply an empty hand receiving what God has to give. Yesterday when people came to get these food boxes, 139 boxes were given out yesterday at our care center. Some families had a huge box to take out with turkey and all this stuff in it, load up their car. I don't think a single one says, look what we did for ourselves. Look what we accomplished. They're saying, look what we were given, what we received. Because it was a gift. It was a gift of grace. Sometimes people will even look and say when someone's baptized, well, that's, that's, that's a work. They're trying to work their way to be saved. No, baptism isn't something you do. Baptism is something you submit to. It's done to you. It's an act of faith. Saying, I want to I unite with Christ. Be buried like him. I want to be raised like him. You can't accomplish that for yourself. He accomplished it for you through grace. When I was in college, I worked for a McDonald's. And I had often worked till close at night. And one, one cold winter night after leaving work, um, close to midnight, I began to walk back to the Bible college. I was walking this dark evening night. Not a soul was moving except when I looked behind, I heard the rustle that there was a man, a pretty large man, following behind me at a, at a distance. And he began to move pretty quickly toward me. So I began to jog a little bit. And I noticed he was jogging too. I began to run faster. He ran faster. Well, it was late at night. I had these greasy shoes from McDonald's. I'm running as fast as I can now, going straight as far as I can. And then I jut down a side road to try to lose him. But I look back. He takes the same turn. He's heading down the road right where I am. And I run down between some houses and I end up getting trapped against a fence. And this man comes up and I thought, I'm in trouble now. He says, hey, dude, I think you dropped this. <laughs> Hands me an envelope. Inside there's five crisp $100 bills. I said, thank you. No problem, and he walks away. The cool thing was, that wasn't mine. But I'm making this whole story up. To tell, you, to tell you something very amazing. Some of you are running from God thinking he's coming to get you. And he's after you to give you something. Something that you could never earn for yourself. A gift of grace. I'm just telling you today, stop running. Turn and open your hands in faith and receive what he has to give.